Thank you so much, Luke, and the rest of the music team for leading us in worship through song. We sing, uh, Oh, what peace we often forfeit, and what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. He will all our sorrows bear. All of those words that we just sang, so rich, so powerful, but there is a question in that hymn, and that question shows up in our text this morning in Mark. That question has been in our lives really ever since we knew what trials were, what difficulty and suffering is. And then specifically this last week uh, with a dear friend of ours, uh, you guys have been praying for our our dear friend Drew Sanchez. Uh, For those of you who don't know, a a former student of mine who uh, he's been at our church for a number of years and one of the sweetest hearts in the world, one of the kindest, most sensitive, most sweet guys in the world. Um, 23 years old fighting for his life, uh, some rare infection. The doctors don't even know what is going on, what happened, but made his brain swell, made blood clots on his brain stem. And we've been praying through tears, pleading with the Lord to work, to act, to heal just as we've been doing for our dear sister Shelly, we've been praying, God, heal. And the answer has been no, not now, not, not yet. And so when we sing a song that says, we take our sorrows to the Lord and we have sorrows because we do not carry everything to the Lord in prayer, then we ask ourselves, wait, if I have carried it to him in prayer and I still have sorrow, Why? Am I doing something wrong? If we see very clearly that Jesus can heal, which is what we saw last week and we see it this week and we're going to see it again in the Gospel of Mark. If we see clearly that God can heal, why doesn't he do it all the time? Why doesn't he do it for our loved ones? Why isn't he working and acting? As we bring our sorrows to him and our cares to him, We still have sorrow. We still struggle with peace. And we wonder, God, why? I'm sure that if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you have wrestled with that question. God, why? And I don't know all the answers. I don't think anybody ever will. Because God is... God, he is the creator, we are the creature, so we can't fully understand. And that's okay, that's a hard thing, but the good thing is we know very clearly, we can understand very clearly that our God is good. And so whatever he allows, it's because he is good and just, and there is nothing that he does that is unfair. We know that. We rest in that. But we still have questions. God, why? Why are you allowing this? And I don't know all of the answers, and there are a lot of answers that the Bible gives, and maybe one day we can go through many of those. But this morning, I think we're given one answer. I think we're given one answer that I think will help us And we'll encourage our hearts as we ask that question, why? If you can do this, if you can heal, why aren't you? So let's look at Mark together. Mark's gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 29 and reading all the way down to verse 39. Mark writes, Immediately after they came out of the synagogue, you remember that's where Jesus was teaching with authority and healing the demon-possessed man, driving the demons out. 
they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she served them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go somewhere else, to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, because that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. These are the words of our gracious God. Let's ask him now through prayer to write their truths on our hearts this morning. God, we are so grateful that we, we have hope. We see in the world around us so much sorrow and suffering and pain, and we experience it even in our church family. We know many things that we've been praying for, many people who are going through trials and suffering and pain, and we know that there are probably many, even in this room, who are going through pain that nobody knows about but you and them. And we come to a text like this where it says that you healed with a word and the sickness was gone. And we ask, why don't you do that for us? And we know a lot of answers that are incorrect to that question. We know that there are many reasons that prosperity gospel preachers would give, faith healing preachers would give that are absolutely wrong and absolutely false, unbiblical answers. And so, God, we, we would reject those answers completely. But God, we come to your word this morning and we ask that you would administer healing to our broken hearts and that you would grant courage and strength to our souls so that we would be able to navigate all of the suffering that we are going through and are going to go through. Just as sparks fly upward, man is born for trouble. Your word is so clear. We are promised difficulties. We are promised trials and suffering and pain. But there is something that we can cling to in this text. And Father, I pray that you would allow it to just wash over our hearts, wash over our souls. We come to you needy and broken, and we ask that you, by your grace, would give us comfort and peace and encouragement, and then enable us to take that encouragement to the world around us, which is so broken and desperately needing Christ. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes this morning that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This text in Mark, we saw last Lord's Day we began. This is one complete day that spans a, a number of events and a number of opportunities that Jesus had for healing, for teaching, for showing forth his authority. It's a very important day. All of the synoptic gospels record this day and almost all of them record the exact same events, but just from different vantage points. By the way, that's what synoptic means. When I use that term, synoptic gospels, I'm using it to refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the synoptic gospels. John wrote much later, decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. And synoptic from two words, sin, uh, like uh, 
synonym, not um, like sin, like some offense against God. Synonym, uh, the, the same, the, the, the same issue, seeing the same thing. And then optic for eye. So synoptic means to see the same thing. Uh, the synoptic gospels are all looking at the same events from different vantage points, but they're all seeing the same events. And so the synoptic gospels all record this massively influential day. And we said last Lord's Day that they're recording it to show the authority of the king. Jesus is claiming to be king. And the question is, if he's king, does he have power? Does he have authority? And last Lord's Day, we saw he had authority in his teaching. And he had authority in commanding demons and evil spirits and unclean spirits. And he had command over the spiritual realm. And then we saw the staggering reality that the crowd saw that authority, recognized that authority. They were in awe of that authority. And yet they still were unbelieving. That leads us to our text this morning. Does Jesus have authority over other things? Maybe he has authority over the spiritual realm because he's the king of a spiritual kingdom. Does he have authority over the physical realm? And that leads us to point number one. We're just going to see two more aspects of his authority this morning. And then we're going to look at where that authority comes from. But point number one, we see Jesus' authority over the physical realm. This is verses 29 through 31. Jesus' authority over the physical realm. Realm. We already saw last Lord's Day his authority over the supernatural, cleansing the man of the unclean spirits. But now we see his authority over the physical realm. Verse 29, immediately after the synagogue, after they come out of the synagogue, after teaching and proclaiming the truth in the synagogue, by the way, which was on the Sabbath. So Jesus is going to heal Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath, which that's breaking Sabbath day laws, according to the tradition of the Pharisees. And that's going to, uh, we're going to see that over and over again in the gospel of Mark, but already he's doing that, showing he has authority over the Sabbath. But immediately on the Sabbath, they come out of the synagogue, they go into the house of Simon and Andrew. This is Peter and Andrew's house. And as I said, last Lord's Day, we've uncovered this house. We know where it is. We've excavated this house in Israel. It's in the northern part of Galilee. Um, and then we've also excavated the synagogue. We know where these two are in vicinity to each other. It's an 83-foot walk from the synagogue to Peter and Andrew's house. Just a little alley, a narrow alleyway takes you there. And Mark tells us that Simon and Andrew go with James and John. Mark is the only gospel writer to tell us that James and John go as well. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Luke doesn't tell us that. Why? Because you remember, Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel through Mark's pen. Mark is getting all of his eyewitness testimony from Peter. And so Peter is saying, then after we saw Jesus do all these things in the synagogue, we took uh, James and John with us. They were the only other people that went with us into our house. Intimate details included by Peter and by Mark that were not included by Matthew or Luke because Luke wasn't there. Matthew wasn't there yet. He wasn't following Jesus yet. We're going to see him be invited to come follow Jesus in a couple Lord's Days. But here, it's just these four followers. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, an intimate miracle. Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. So this tells us a couple of things. Number one, Peter was married. It's very important for a number of issues. But we see even in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, Paul tells us that Peter used to take his wife with him when they would go on preaching journeys and missionary journeys. So Peter had a wife. Peter was married. Peter had a mother-in-law and a father-in-law. It seems like Peter's father-in-law had already died. And that's why Peter's mother-in-law is now living with them. They're taking care of her. But we're also told that he has family and a home and those two things he was willing to leave behind to follow Jesus. It's not like Peter is homeless and has nothing else and no property, no, no uh, money, and just says, okay, I'll follow Jesus. No, he had things that he was choosing to leave behind. Peter's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. Luke, in his gospel, he's the doctor. Remember, he is a physician he says it was a great fever. Two Greek words. Great is the word megas, where we get mega. It was a mega fever. And fever is the word for fire. So it was literally a megas fire. Uh, he, he is describing this fever that it seems that if there is no 
intervening help that this sickness is heading toward death. We're not sure, but it seems that way. And immediately, they speak to Jesus about her. I wonder where do you go immediately when you hear bad news? They go immediately to Jesus. And why? Because they just saw Jesus care for the man with the unclean spirit. They know if anyone can do anything about this, it's him. They go immediately to Jesus. And verse 31, Jesus comes to her, raises her up, takes her by the hand, and the fever leaves her, and she begins serving them. It's such a fast account. It's the way that Luke loves to write. It's just such a quick, instantaneous. He takes her by the hand, he speaks, and the fever's gone. Luke tells us that Jesus rebukes the fever. He speaks to the fever. You have to have quite a lot of authority to speak to a fever and have the fever listen to you, obey you, and die. That's a lot of authority. And here we are seeing, once again, Jesus is not conjuring up power. He's not saying, by the power of so-and-so, by the authority of uh, Solomon. No, he just simply says, be gone. And his healing of Peter's mother-in-law demonstrates two aspects about our Savior. Number one, his power, and number two, his compassion. His authority over the physical realm demonstrates his power and his compassion. His power, clearly seen. There are 30 recorded healings in the Gospels, and they are all showing us the authority that Jesus has over sickness. Mark is showing us that Jesus has authority over the physical realm as well as the spiritual. We already saw he has authority over the spiritual, but he also has authority over the physical realm. He has authority over the Sabbath because he's healing on the Sabbath. And he has such power, it would be very easy for somebody to say, well, Jesus was just a good doctor. He was a really good doctor ahead of his time. But there's an effect that happens. There's a note that Mark gives us to prove to us this is not the work of a really good doctor. This is the work of God who has authority over sickness and disease and the physical realm as a whole. And it's at the very end of verse 31. After the fever leaves her, she gets up and begins serving Jesus and the other disciples. Just like a good Jewish mother would do. Are you hungry? No, I'm okay. You're hungry. Let me give you food, right? She gets up and starts serving. But notice when she does this, she does this immediately after the fever leaves her. This is not normal when it comes to getting over being sick. If you've ever been sick, you have a fever, you have the flu. When you're finally done being sick, you can't get up out of bed and run a marathon, right? You can't just get out of bed and go back to normal living. You get up out of bed and you feel woozy and you're, it's hard to walk. She instantly is able to get up and just go back to normal living. This is completely different because when Jesus heals, he does not just heal the problem. He heals all of the effects of that problem. This is completely different than any doctor healing. Doctors will take care of that problem, but then slowly but surely the effects of that problem will go away because they've taken care of the issue. Jesus takes care of both the issue and the effects of that issue instantly go away. And we're going to see this time and time again in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is showing us the power that Christ has over the physical realm. But Mark's also showing us the compassion that Jesus has as he heals Peter's mother-in-law. This is an intimate encounter. Not many people are seeing this. This is not to display his power for all to see. This is just for a handful of people. He takes her by the hand. He touches her. He's close to her. She's not afraid of the fever coming to him. As he gets close to the fever, the fever becomes afraid of him. He loves her. And it shows his compassion because he didn't have to do this. 
it would not have been wrong for him to say to Peter and to Andrew, not now. Not right now. God never promises that we will be healed. He never promises that we will physically be healed in this life. When it comes to sickness and disease, God actually promises one thing in the Bible to us, and it's in the book of Hebrews, and it says it is appointed unto man to die and then be judged. That's what God promises. He does not promise healing. He promises death. That is what is happening. That's what's coming to all of us. It's appointed unto man once to die and then judgment. But Jesus says, I'm going to give you more time. I'm going to press pause. Peter's mother-in-law is going to ultimately die, but I'm going to press pause. I'm going to heal you and give you more time. And look at what her response is to that compassion. She gets up and serves. When somebody has been touched by the compassion of Christ, when they know the love that Jesus has poured out upon them, they cannot help themselves but to serve him. Everyone delivered by Jesus has this response. And so we see the authority that Jesus has over the physical realm. But it isn't like he's going the spiritual realm and then pause on that. We'll go to the physical realm and then pause on that. We'll go back and forth and back and forth. No, he has authority over all of it at the exact same time. And that leads us to point number two, the authority that Jesus has over physical and spiritual realm together. So we saw Jesus last Lord's Day having authority over the supernatural, the spiritual realm. We see beginning in this text, Jesus has authority over the physical realm. And now Jesus is shown to have authority over all of those realms all at the same time in the way that he works. This is verses 32 through 34. Number two, Jesus has authority over physical and spiritual realm at the same time. Verse 32, when evening came after the sun had set, the sun needed to go down for these good Jewish people to not feel like they were breaking the Sabbath. So it's the Sabbath. They know that Jesus can do these miracles. They know for them that would be breaking the Sabbath. They don't want to do that. They don't want to break the tradition of the Pharisees. So they say, we're going to wait until the sun goes down. And the tradition said that you would have to see three stars in the sky. And that meant the Sabbath was over. So once those three stars in the sky were visible, they went to Jesus and they began bringing him all who were ill and all those who were demon oppressed or possessed. Remember, this is Peter's gospel. And so I just imagine Peter telling Mark, remembering this scene so well. I mean, if you're living this scene out, if you are with Jesus as this is happening, there's no way you forget the, the sights, the smells, the sounds. And Peter's just saying, man, we, we walked out of that house or we heard commotion after we ate our dinner and and night began to fall, we heard commotion outside of our house and somebody looked through the window and saw this massive crowd. And we thought, what are we doing? What, what's going on? How are we gonna handle everybody? And Jesus says, I've got this. And he goes out and he starts talking with people. He starts healing people and more people keep coming and more people keep coming. And, and just, you would never forget this scene. Everyone's there, verse 33. The whole city is gathered at the door. Anyone who has an issue, who has a problem, or who knows somebody who has an issue or a problem, they're bringing them and he's healing them. Verse 34, he heals diseases. He casts out demons. By the way, note in verse 34, he heals many who are ill with various diseases and he casts out many demons. Those are separate. All disease and sickness is a result of sin in the fall, but not all disease and sickness is the result of demonic activity or oppression. These are split out. And as he's healing people, so authority over the physical realm, and as he's casting out demons, so authority over the spiritual realm, he's not permitting the demons to speak. We saw this earlier. Literally, it says, verse 34, because they know who he is. The men around him are confused as to his identity, but the demons know exactly who he is. And he says, because of that reality, I don't want you saying anything. I don't want you talking about me. I don't want your affirmation about my identity. You're the bad guys. 
I don't, know, I, I don't need you going around in the world telling people who I am. It would be incredibly confusing. And we see that even today. The most dangerous cults are the ones that affirm our Bible and affirm our belief in Jesus, but then twist certain aspects about his character, certain aspects about the gospel, certain aspects about uh, his doctrine and his work. Those are the most demonic and most satanic because they appear in the form of angels of light. And so Jesus says, I don't need that confusion. I don't need that. But he's healing people. He has authority over physical and spiritual. And here in this section, we also see two realities about Jesus. So the last section, we see that he has power and compassion. In this section, we see that he is busy and he is approachable. Our Savior is busy and approachable. Brothers and sisters, if you love people, you will be busy. Jesus loves people and therefore he wants to be with them and therefore he's going to be busy. He's not some guru just sitting there in some peaceful meditative silence. He's out and about. He's with people and he's approachable. He's busy in ministry and he's approachable. This reveals his care for common people. He's not just taking care of Peter's mother-in-law because there's a special relationship. Peter's the follower, so you get special privileges of my healing power. No, I'm going to heal anyone. There's no razzle-dazzle here, no hocus-pocus. He just loves people. And this is an overflow because of his power and authority. He just loves people. He loves them and he cares for them. But in his busyness, in his being approachable, we would ask the question, well, if you are healing all these people, why won't you heal us? Why don't you heal my loved one? Why don't you heal our friend? Why did you allow that sickness to happen? Why did you allow them to go through that? And here's where we're beginning to see, we'll see it in the next section, but we're beginning to see, and this is going to show up all the time through the Gospel of Mark we're beginning to see the depth of God's care for us. God cares about every problem we face. You you must believe that God cares for the pain that you are experiencing as you are going through sickness and suffering or as you're watching somebody go through sickness and suffering. The Bible is very clear that God cares intimately. He holds every tear that you cry in a bottle, the psalmist says but he cares so deeply that he will not stop at fixing surface level issues only. Our greatest sickness, our greatest problem is not physical disease. Our greatest problem is spiritual sickness. It's sin. Our greatest problem is not demons. Our greatest problem is death as a result of our sin. We don't need a Messiah who will bring political liberation or even physical healing to all of us. We need a Messiah who can spiritually heal us and give us life eternal, not just fix our temporal problems, but give us eternal life. So when I read these verses and I see Jesus with authority and power just touching people and healing them, I start to ask the question, then God, why are you not healing my friend? Why aren't you healing my loved one? I sat with Drew yesterday, praying over him. I told him that I was preaching this today. And I said, I am begging God to heal you. And I know he can. I know he can. It says right here that he can. But I also know that that's not usually the way he works. And I know he has provided a deeper healing than the one I'm even asking for. He's provided a healing that goes so deep that even if he answers our 
are pleading with him, heal him physically. If he answers that with a no, he has provided a way for Drew to be healed eternally by the blood of his cross. That's why Jesus came. And that's why, though absolutely sorrowful, it is okay if Jesus chooses to say, no, I'm not going to heal. It's not because he doesn't have the power or the authority, but because he wants to put on display a glory that will point us to the deeper healing that all of us need, which goes to our souls. And that's what we see in the next section, verses 35 to 39. The people must have thought at the end of verse 34, what's tomorrow going to be like? I don't know when Jesus cut off the healing, but he said, okay, we're going to bed. They must have been thinking, I can't wait to get back tomorrow to see him again. I can't wait to see what he's going to do. Maybe they're telling friends, go to the, the neighboring villages and towns, tell them there is a healer here. And yet we see something shocking about the way that Jesus responds. In verses 35 through 39, we see the power behind and the purpose of Jesus's authority. So we have seen, number one, Jesus's authority over the physical realm. We've seen, number two, Jesus's authority over the physical and spiritual at the same time over all. But now, number three, we're gonna see Jesus's power behind and purpose of the authority that we've seen. The authority that he's demonstrating, we are going to get a glimpse into the power behind that authority and the reason why that authority exists, the purpose for why that authority is being displayed. And if I could just sum it up for you in this section, it's two words. The power behind is prayer and dependence upon God. And the purpose for the authority is to preach the gospel, prayer and preaching. And that's what we're going to see in this section. Verse 35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. Jesus gets up while it's still dark. Nobody gets up during this time of the day except for Jesus and the Proverbs 31 woman. Like this is incredible. He's up, he's, he's talking. By the way, he's up after he labored long into the night. Nevertheless, he's up early in the morning. That's my excuse. If I had a late night, I can sleep in because I had a late night of ministry and now I'm tired and I deserve to sleep in. Not so for Jesus. He doesn't pull the, I had a late night of ministry card. He says, I still need to get up and be with my father. He is busy, but he still prays. And if I can say that a little bit better, he is busy because he prays. Don't ever think that prayer and fruitful ministry are forces that are pulled in an opposite direction. Prayer is what is allowing Jesus to do all of the work that he is doing. Prayer is what is the power behind him doing that work. You remember we talked about during the temptations, turn rocks into bread. There's nothing morally wrong about that. Why is that a temptation? Because the devil is asking Jesus, because you are God and have authority over the physical realm, you can do this on your own power, on your own initiative, on your own authority. But Jesus, Philippians 2 tells us, laid aside, never laid aside his deity. He always retained his deity, all of his divine uh, attributes. He never laid them aside, but he laid aside independently using them. He, he laid aside being able to use all of those divine attributes on his own. He, he gave that to the father to say, father, if you want me to do this miracle, tell me when and give me the power by the spirit. He had to do that because Philippians 2 says he lived within our limitations. He took upon himself hum, human limitations. And so where does he get all of his power? Where does he get all of his authority? By waiting on the Father, depending on him and the, the perfect timing of the Father and the working of the Holy Spirit. He lived our lives out before us. He had no more advantage in living life than you and I do. And so here, he prays. And prayer will allow him to 
to do all of the work that he's doing with the power and authority that he's doing it. By the way, us as well, go to Colossians chapter one. The same is true for us as well. In Colossians chapter one, you remember Paul writes chapter one, verses 28 and 29, kind of a mission statement for his ministry. Colossians chapter one, verses 28 and 29. He says, we proclaim Christ admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So every man, all men, he has a very large vision of his ministry, what he wants to accomplish, and he's busy in it. And that's why he says, verse 29, for this purpose, I also labor, that word for labor is toiling to the point of exhaustion. You do a job and at the end of the day, you fall asleep instantly because you're so exhausted. I labor, I labor to the point of exhaustion. I work to the point where I am so tired at the end of the day, I just hit the pillow and instantly I'm out. And I strive, it's one of my favorite Greek words, agonizomai, where we get the word agony from. It is agonizing, Paul says. I'm busy in ministry, I'm exhausted by ministry, and ministry is agonizing. And we would say in, in uh, evangelicalism, there's a big buzzword called burnout, right? Ministerial burnout. Oh no, Paul, you're going to burn out. So many people would have said, Paul, you're going to burn out. You're saying that ministry is exhausting, that it's agonizing. You're going to burn out, Paul. And Paul would have said, no, I'm not. Because I labor and strive according to his power, which works mightily within me. If you have no energy or passion or endurance in ministry, in discipleship, in helping others follow Jesus, it's probably because you have not given sufficient attention to the inner workings of your heart in prayer and in time with the Lord. Because if you are striving according to his power and his power is unlimited, then there should be no such thing as burnout. When we burn out, we prove that we were not coupled to the power and authority of Christ in our ministry. And so we say, okay, how are we going to couple ourselves to the power of the Lord? How are we going to couple ourselves to him? And we see it here in prayer. The answer is prayer. There's a way to be unhurried while being busy in ministry. There's a way to be unhurried while being busy. And the way is what Jesus is showing us right here, going away to a desolate place. My Bible says secluded place. He got up in the morning left the house and he went to a secluded place and was praying there. No distractions, no multitasking prayer life, no single-minded devotion to the Father. Secluded place, that's actually one word in the Greek and it's the same word that's used back in verse 14, chapter one, verse, four, uh, verse 13 rather, for wilderness where the spirit uh, impelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. That's the exact same word that's found here. We could just say he went away to the wilderness. The Spirit drove him there first, and he's taking himself there the second time. Why? Because God does spiritual work in our hearts in the wilderness. There are three times where Mark highlights Jesus praying in the gospel, in, in his gospel. And every time he highlights, these three times, we see Jesus praying in a secluded place, a desolate place, a wilderness. Mark chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, he goes off in the wilderness alone by himself and he prays. Mark 14, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes by himself and he prays. And here he goes away by himself and he prays. Where did all of his power, direction, and authority to perform these miracles come from? It came from praying, from the Father through the Spirit. He didn't do miracles on his own initiative. He waited on the authority of the Father, the timing of the Father, and the power of the Spirit. And we're not told what Jesus prayed in verse 35. Maybe he's praying about yesterday. Maybe he's praying about all of the ministry that he was able to do. God, please be with these individuals that I healed. Maybe he's asking his father, what should I be doing today? Maybe that's why he's going to tell Simon and the other disciples, let's go from here because I've been directed by the father to go somewhere else. We're not told what he prays but we are given the response to Peter's question in verse 36. Peter, Simon, and his companions searched for Jesus. It's kind of the first time in this gospel that we see 
Peter taking the helm. He's assuming authority and assuming leadership. So he and the followers, the other companions, so James and John and Andrew, are going to search for Jesus. And that word for search is a word that has uh, the idea of hunting him down, of trying to find him but not being able to find him. And so they're looking. Jesus is not easy to find. He wanted no distractions. And they find him, verse 37. And they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, I don't know the tone of how this is said, but it seems to me like at least there's a little bit of an annoyance that the disciples have about Jesus, and maybe even from Peter, a rebuke. Hey, why are you here when everyone's there? Right? That's kind of the idea here. Everyone's looking for you. Why are you here? In essence, what Peter's saying is, Jesus, there's a much better way to be spending your time than what you're doing. You're all by yourself, and there's all these people that need you. And I guarantee you, they never would have been prepared for his response. They never would have understood what he was about to say. Give them 10 guesses as to how Jesus is going to respond to everyone's looking for you, and they would never have said this one. Jesus says, let's get out of here. Oh, there's a crowd? Let's go. If Mark was making this gospel up, this makes no sense, right? This answer makes no sense. How would you respond if you are Jesus and Peter says, there's a whole crowd waiting for you? We would probably said, great, let's preach. Let's start a church. Let's get some ministry going. Maybe this can be our home base. We'll cash in on the popularity that we have. And Jesus says, let's leave. Why? Verse 38, he says, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. You know, Jesus sees very clearly that these people are coming to him for the wrong reasons. There is nothing wrong with wanting physical uh, relief from physical pain or suffering. There's nothing wrong with that desire. I want relief from physical pain or suffering. It becomes wrong when that becomes the bottom foundation and the main motivational goal of everything you do. That's what I want more than anything. And Jesus knows that there are people coming to him with that as their motivation. I don't care about the gospel. I don't care about the kingdom. I don't care about sin. I just want to be physically healed. And Jesus does not want to further that kind of unbelief. This is what he said in John chapter 6, verse 26, after the feeding of the 5,000. You seek me not because of the, the signs that I'm doing that prove who I am in my deity. You seek me just because you want to eat. I gave you bread. You enjoy bread. You want to eat more bread, and that's why you're coming to me. You don't care about me. You care about what I can do for you physically. The crowds came to Jesus for miracles. Jesus came to the crowds for the gospel. And so he will not be driven by the desire of the crowds. He will not be deterred from his mission. How easy it would have been for him to be deterred, to just bask in the glory of his popularity. But he loves these people too much to do that. He healed them because he had compassion on them. And now he's leaving them because he has even greater compassion on them. His task is not to draw a crowd and his task is not ultimately just to heal physically. His task is to save spiritually. That's why John Calvin said, the miracles that Jesus did were appendages to the gospel. They weren't necessary for the gospel. They were just appendages to help the gospel go forth. No, Jesus easily could have just been riding a, a wave of popular support. He leaves it behind. Why? Because he is more interested in the quality of the people's response to him than in the quantity of the crowd. He's more interested in the quality of their response. And this is where I think this is a question for you and for me. Why do you come to Jesus? He's not interested in the fact that you have come to him. He's interested in the quality of why you are coming to him. Are you coming to him because you're impressed by him? Well, the crowd's 
In last week's sermon, in last week's text, they were very impressed by Jesus. Nobody speaks like this man. He has authority beyond the Pharisees, beyond the scribes, and they weren't saved. You can be impressed by Jesus, but not be saved. Are you coming to Jesus because he can afford a social group to hang out in? I'm glad that you can enjoy that. But Jesus would say, I'm not interested in growing a quantity of followers. I'm interested in growing the quality of you loving me and following me for me not for the things that I have to give. Because ultimately, whatever it is that we are going to Jesus for, if it isn't Jesus himself, that's idolatry. I'm using Jesus to get something from him. I don't want Jesus for Jesus. I'm using him to get something. This is why John Piper, in the opening of his uh, book, God is the Gospel, says, if you were to picture heaven and it had every single creature comfort that you want, everything that you want and nothing that you don't, and you picture heaven having this beautiful paradise but Jesus isn't there, would you be happy? And I think so many nominal Christians in evangelicalism would say, you know what, I'd still be happy because I'm using Jesus to just get paradise, to get uh, freedom from pain, freedom from suffering. And Jesus says, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is loving Christ and saying, I want him. And I want him even if he chooses not to heal me. I want him, even if he says, I'm not going to heal. I want him. He says, let's go to the nearby town so that I may preach there also, because that is why I came. That's what I'm here for. I'm not here primarily to be a miracle worker. I'm here to be the savior of souls. And it is that mission that propels him to say no to certain things and yes to others. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly the answer to our question, to our dilemma. God, why are you choosing not to heal? The answer is, there is something greater that I came for. And that something is his glory being revealed in an even deeper way. What we're asking for is not wrong, it's not bad, it is good. And God says, with sorrow in his heart. This is what Lamentations tells us. He does not afflict willingly, literally from the heart. He does not say no with a smile on his face, saying, I know I could heal you, but I'm choosing not to. No, he does not afflict willingly. It hurts his heart to say, I'm not gonna heal. But he says that because there is a deeper healing that will take place because of that answer. There's a deeper healing that will take place because he chooses to say no. And that's why with this mission in his sights, Jesus says, I have a task to do and I'm going to do it. And he goes into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. How would you answer that question? If somebody says, why are you here? Why do you have life? Why do you have breath? Why are you here in L.A.? What would your answer be? What's the reason for why you exist? If you do not proactively figure out the answer to that question, then you'll just live life reactively. You'll get to the end of your life and realize, I don't even know why I was here. You need to proactively figure out what has God called me to in my character and what has God called me to in my conquest? What is my mission in life? And brothers and sisters, the answer to that question It comes from exactly what Jesus just showed us. Go to the Father in prayer and then preach the gospel with every fiber of your being. That's the answer. You must live these two realities out on a regular basis. There is no other reason for us to be here. There's a lot of secondary, tertiary reasons, but the ultimate reason why we're here is to tell people about Jesus before we go to see him ourselves. That's it. And if there's anything that we've learned, even in this last week, It's the fleeting, fragile nature of life. And it it brings into such stark contrast. It's It's like our souls jumping into a pool of freezing cold water that just shocks our system and reminds us we are all going to die. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we have people in our lives who we do not know where they will spend all of eternity. And God has given us the privilege here of telling them about Jesus. There's no other reason why we would be here and God not ushering us into heaven right now. Just 
the reason why we exist here is to point people to the glory of God. There's so much more that can be said on prayer and maybe one day we can do a little bit of a deep dive into the reality of Jesus's prayer life and what it teaches us about how we should pray. Bottom line, as J.C. Ryle says, is can you speak to God as well as you can speak about God? You should go before him in prayer and call out to him intimately, pleading with him. Jesus needed a regular time of prayer. So who are we to think that we don't? So I would just encourage you, brothers and sisters, Start small in prayer, but start. Every day, start and then go. Live on mission, telling people about Jesus. Jesus shows us in this text his authority over the physical realm, the spiritual realm, and we get a glimpse into the power behind that authority and the purpose of that authority. The power behind is prayer and dependence on the Father, and the purpose of that authority is to show people the glory of God and that they would be saved by hearing the gospel. Jesus loved people and busied himself in ministry. Do you? Jesus had to say no to legitimate requests to his time. Do you? Jesus couldn't meet all the needs around him, so it makes us think that we can. He had to withdraw to desolate places to pray. Do we? Jesus knew his mission in life. Do you? Do you know why you're here and are you living according to that mission? He relied on the spirit and the direction of the father. Do you? Do we rely on the spirit and the direction of the father? And Jesus knew that physical healing is good and a gracious gift. But he knew it's temporal at best. But he also knew that spiritual, eternal healing is what everyone around him needed most. Do we? And does our life show that that is our priority? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the reminder this morning, the glorious reality of your goodness on display. We wrestle when we see the things that are going on in our lives that cause so much pain and we wrestle with why just the question of why and and god that is that's not a bad question to ask i thank you so much for jesus that he asked on the cross why have you forsaken me it's not wrong to ask that question and we may never know the fullness of the, the answer and that's why i think eternity will be eternity we need all that time to figure out all of the answers for why you're allowing the things you are. But we are given one this morning. We're given one answer, that there is a deeper need than just physical healing. Even though that need is great, there is a deeper need. And so, Father, I pray that for those in this room who know you, love you, are saved have been bought and redeemed by your blood. That in the midst of their sorrow and despair and sadness, that they would have a peace that surpasses all understanding and comprehension because they are stayed upon Yahweh, our great, gracious, and good God. And that because we know you have given us Christ, you will freely give us all things along with him. Encourage our hearts now as we sing. And we pray it in your name. Amen.